Stabbed in the back. After the First World War, the German right and the German military consoled themselves with the notion that, in fact, Germany had been successful on the battlefield, only to be defeated at home by a complex and shadowy conspiracy of socialists and minorities who wished evil to the German Empire. Such a vision fueled the reinvigoration of the German right and the rise of the Nazi party. And at the center of it all stood a titanic figure in German military history and politics, Erich Ludendorff the hero of Liège and of Tannenberg, effective dictator of Germany from 1916 to 18, and its so-called battle lord. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I'm joined today by Jay Lockenauer. He's Associate Professor of History at Temple University. He's the author of Soldiers as Citizens. He's the former host of the New Books and Military History podcast and author most recently of Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Eric Ludendorff and the Weimar Republic and Third Reich. Jay, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thank you. So I, I I expect that any number of our listeners will vaguely associate the name Ludendorff with you know the German Empire, German history of the early part of the 20th century, and may not know a great deal more. Describe, if you would, the world into which Eric Ludendorff was born and came of age and the military that he joined. Right. So Ludendorff was essentially, he was the dictator of Germany from 1916 to 1918 during the First World War. He was the brains of the Third Supreme Command, ostensibly led by Paul von Hindenburg, who, who is an enormously important figure and about whom there are there there is a recent and terrific biography. But Ludendorff he gets kind of swept under the rug after 1918. Most biographers cover his wartime experience quite thoroughly and, and excellently. And then they see him kind of going crazy and flirting with Hitler and so forth after the war. And, and when I was, you know, discovered his story through a coincidence kind of I, I became interested in resurrecting that post-war story of Eric Ludendorff, that, that period from 1918 on, when uh, I argue he becomes the, the embodiment of German fantasies of revenge for the war that, that shouldn't have been lost in his view and in the view of many other Germans. Your your book, which I, I recommend to, to our listeners, it's, it's really a very interesting weave of not just military history, but also political and, and, and political history and, and literary analysis, the way in which you kind of show Ludendorff using German epic to, you know, create a bit of a myth of himself. It's, it's, it's really very much worth everyone's time and, and relevant as well, I think, to, to things that are going on today. Can you, can you before we get into the myth-making and the, the stabbing in the back and, and all of that, we go back to the end of the 19th century, and could you paint a picture for folks of the world into which Ludendorff you know, was born and, and entered the military? What, what, what is the, the late German, well, I actually suppose that's not quite the right way to put it, what does the Imperial German army look like, and, 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 and what does Ludendorff's upbringing look like? 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's a well-known part of his story is that he's not an aristocrat. He, in fact, there are a number of books in, in researching this story that, that call him Eric von Ludendorff, as, as if he had an aristocratic background. And I think he would have bristled at that notion. In fact, he was quite proud of his, of his non-aristocratic upbringing. That's part of, that's part of this, the Dragon Slayer story is that he rose from relative obscurity to be, I mean, quite against the, the wishes, I would think, of a lot of people in the, in the German general staff this major figure that he he didn't have an aristocratic upbringing, he didn't have the family background that most of his peers had, and yet he succeeded in spite of that. And I think for all that I, I think he's a despicable character, I could say he would have been particularly proud of that, of that aspect of his upbringing. So something like in the late 19th century, 65% of, of the upper, upper crust of the German officer corps would have been aristocratic. And and he was from that non-aristocratic side and and made it there by by his own talent. I mean, I obviously I tell his story and and he tells his story, you know, in such a way that it's he he emphasizes his his own successes. But you can you can sense it that that people they both resented him. I mean, he wasn't he didn't have particularly many friends. And yet he was this incredibly successful, got promoted before, you know, before the, the, the time in rank would have dictated that consistently throughout his career that people recognized his, his talent. I, I don't know how intentionally humorous it was, but your your depiction of him and his, his character early in the book, in particular, when he's, when you're talking about him, when he's young was humorous to me. I mean, he, he he kind of embodies this this almost very English stereotype of a Prussian officer, you know, humorless, dogged, charmless. And then you you're, you're talking about the way in which he thinks of himself as uh, as Siegfried, and you you show the photograph of the actor who plays Siegfried, the sort of handsome, dashing German actor playing Siegfried in uh, you know the German cinema the early twentieth century, next to a photograph of Ludendorff himself. You make the case that. His contemporaries thought he was handsome. I have to say, the photograph that's in the book does not does not fully prove your point. Hey, you know, it's beauty is in the eye of the beholder. He, you know, people around him. It, it, it's in a way like Hitler. So I, I had as my model for this book an excellent, a much better book by Ian Kershaw called "The Hitler Myth." Uh, about the kind of persona of Adolf Hitler, and there, as a German historian, it's hard for it's hard, for, and as an American, it's hard to imagine Hitler as a handsome person, and yet people describe him that way, and people describe Ludendorff that way as this this clear eye, clear blue eyed Nordic god. And you look, I look at him, and I see a fat, dumpy old German guy. So, but as historians, we 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 take our our evidence where we find it and and that's that's the testimony that people offer so we have to we have to serve that forward i guess you do encounter i i you, particularly in the military you encounter types who are when seen static when seen not moving you wonder what the appeal is and it's actually their their energy like literally their movement that that throws them into a different light but we'll we'll, we'll i guess have to give his contemporaries the benefit of the of the doubt so in, in he goes as a as a, a young adolescent into series of, of schools into the military. Um, as you point out, he does very well. And then it's in 1894 
he's assigned to the to the general staff. Could you could you talk a little bit about what that meant for Ludendorff's career? And listeners may have heard of the German general staff and be vaguely aware of its significance. But why why was it why was it significant? What was unusual about this organization? So the the general staff. I mean, it's a uh, it it comes out of a period in the early 19th century, reacting essentially to what was described as the genius of Napoleon. That that here was this person who who embodied, you know, genius in warfare and how how and I think of it this way. I'm not sure contemporaries saw it this way, but the Germans tried to institutionalize that. They tried to say, well, we we can't count on there being Napoleon around when we need one, so let's let's build one out of parts. And so the German general staff is a kind of effort to to replicate military genius on an institutional level. And and people like Ludendorff, you know, go into that institution as the kind of the brains of of this of this bureaucracy that's supposed to represent military genius. And 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 I, you know, like I said, I I he is a despicable person in lots of ways. But that success and that entry into that institution, particularly as a an aristocrat, as I'll say again, was a a, a mark of his talent. He, he goes in, but if if you want me to go on, you stop me if you want. <laughs> no, 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 I think this is interesting. Actually, he goes in with a particular fascination with technology, and this is the one. If if people don't know him from the history, they might know him from Wonder Woman, <laughs> the movie, where he. It kind of blows my mind that he shows up there, and yet I try to give movie makers the benefit of the doubt. Like he, he was he was a promoter of technology. He promoted. He was interested in aircraft. He was interested in heavy artillery, which plays a role in the early part of the war. So that's that was you know he he found his home there. And how how was the staff organized, and what roles did he have there? Because he was there twice, right? He was there as a relatively junior officer. And then more in the in the middle of his career in in Yeah, so he eventually becomes the 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 chief of the operations section, which is the war planners, essentially planning for you know the future wars. And so he inherits Schlieffen's famous plan from 1905 and becomes a, a kind of champion in his own right. I mean, of that of that plan and and an executioner. He he. He runs afoul of some of the political leadership in the in the 1912-13 and gets ousted from the general staff and sent to a, a command position, but is quickly called back when the war starts and and placed in command out in in, in Liège, where which is where the initial important battle of the war is supposed to take place that he in fact planned. So he's he's gone but not forgotten and and comes back to the critical point. And, and just to stick with the the pre-war period for a moment, because I'd like to come to World War One, and then, of course, the aftermath, which is what your book really focuses on. You know how how today, you know, twenty twenty two, you know, for Americans, we have the Pentagon, we have the Joint Staff. You know, the notion that there is a large standing staff apparatus that plans contingencies as its work. You know, that is prepared to go to war. You know, and we have a plan. I, in Canada, by the way, I yeah. I well, don't know what it is? It's somewhere. <laughs> if you're going to pick outrageous examples, I don't know if that would be the most outrageous. But fact, I take your point. We have plans for everything. At the turn of the 20th century, where the Germans was this unusual that the Germans were doing this? 
No. And in fact, the Germans had become by that point kind of a model because of their successes in the 1870s and unifying the country. The Prussian military model had some sway. The Japanese uh, model their their army after after the Prussian model. Uh, Americans are endlessly fascinated with uh, the Prussian example and Clausewitz and and all that was you know, certainly nowadays is required reading to the for the U.S. Army. So that that German model was was there for people to to imitate. Got it. So let's 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 get to the war then. So uh, there he was a few years earlier figuring out what it would take in his view to, to make the the Schlüsselmann actually effective in planning assaults on these fortresses in Belgium. What what was the fortress system on the on the Belgian frontier or ass- assess the problem to the German military that this fortress system imposed? Because again, I think looking back on it from the present day, you, you think of fortresses and you think of modern warfare and you think, well, modern offensive weapons and tactics ought to make pretty short work of things that are in effect castles. And I suppose in a way that's true. In another way, it was a challenge. Like, can you can you kind of walk us through that and how Ludendorff distinguished himself? Yeah. So, I mean, I teach about castles too. Castles have high, thin walls designed to keep out people. And when gunpowder weapons come around, they become obsolete. So by the end of the 19th century, you have what are essentially fortress complexes like Liège in Belgium and and Verdun and, and other places along these border territories that were, you know, designed to resist heavy artillery you know, steel reinforced concrete, although the Germans did, did a fascinating study of the fortresses at Liège and Namur and, and found their, you know, French construction obsolete. And the Germans had designed these weapons, these, these Krupp and, and Austrian Skoda siege complexes. We don't talk about combined arms in the same way now, but it was in a, in a sense that, that this kind of networked infrastructure where the the fortresses were sited within range of each other's artilleries in theory so that they could support each other. If one was attacked, they could be brought under fire by at least two others. I mean, I can go into details. There are faults with the Belgian complex, and it's it's kind of controversial about whether they actually held up the Germans or they didn't. Ludendorff didn't think that they, they held up very well. There are people that disagree. But I, I don't know how much how much more you want to know about that. Well, what actually? Yeah, no, I, I actually think it's all quite interesting. So, as much as you want to share, and and what actually happened as well. Yeah. So one of one of my most interesting sources was the Belgian commander of those fortresses, General Le Mans. He was captured by the Germans after the fortress he was in exploded, basically either because of a probably because of German fire striking their their ammo, their armory, and exploding it from within. He, I, I wasn't able to squeeze this into the book, but he's he's more famous than Lady Gaga. Would, I just want to get that on record. He he got his figure in Madame Tussauds wax, wax museum within six weeks huh. into the battle, and it took Lady Gaga after her first successful album like six months at <laughs> a wax figure there. So <laughs> General Le Mans and his Gallic mustache were was in there first. It's 
you know, it was a, it was a, it was an important battle. It was one the Germans needed to to win as quickly as possible in order to open up the railways and and so forth that they needed to get into France to make the the solution plan happen. So, and again, that's part of the reason for the controversy. But and what was Ludendorff's role specifically? I mean, what, why is it that he personally was distinguished in the aftermath? Yeah, so he he had been in a command, a troop command in Strasbourg in the in what you know Alsace Lorraine, this region that was annexed by Germany after the war in 1870. He'd been kind of exiled there because he'd made some enemies calling for a, a larger army and some, some additional funds for the army in 1912, 1913. And so they kind of banished him out of the general staff to this troop command. But he was called up right away to the army that was going to attack Liège, partly because he was he had been the architect of this plan. And he it, it's a strange position. It's, it's one that doesn't really exist in some armies a kind of general without portfolio. He was he was just there and could tell people what to do if he thought it was necessary. And so he went from place to place, you know, wherever the fighting was hottest and and literally took command of some troops in the, you know, in, in streets that were blocked by by Belgian infantry and and cleared them and then would go back and talk to the the commander of the second army. And he was just kind of all over the place. Hmm. And, uh, and and partly, so this becomes part of his legend. So I, I don't want to, you know, I, it should be clear to listeners that my book is not about the war, which I had trouble with at first. I, I had to convince people that this was not a book about the war. It's about his post-war legend making. And this, this battle becomes an important part of his legend and becomes linked in his mind and his followers' minds with the, the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923, where he marches with Hitler, where the march through Munich is really his idea. And, mm-hmm. and they, you know, in his telling, they both embody this kind of courage and this, this initiative that he, that he carries out to save Germany, that, that, you know, Liège is just like 1923 in, in Berlin, I mean, in Munich. And, and sort of, you, you know, part of a pattern of tactical operational brilliance that's ultimately, you know, in, 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 the, in the myth that he foments, right. undermined, right, by, by a variety of forces. Right. The step. Um, yeah. Whole thing. And so, well, really, it's kind of two parts. There's Liège is kind of the operational, the courage, the personal, the personal battlefront experience, and then Tannenberg, the Battle of Tannenberg in, in Russia, becomes the kind of strategic operational genius, where he defeats a much larger force and and rescues Germany in this defensive struggle. So it's it's uh, both of those battles are carefully chosen to enhance his his legend. And this is also this is the same month, right? August of August yeah. of nineteen fourteen. It's quite the month. So he's plucked from Belgium and sent east because the Russians are are giving the Germans trouble out east, and there's there are doubts about the, the leadership out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as as Ludendorff would tell you, he was called first. In fact, you know, Moltke, who was the the chief of the general staff at the time, Moltke the younger, selects Ludendorff and then finds Hindenburg to be the supreme commander because Hindenburg has a seniority and aristocratic name and so forth. But but Ludendorff would tell you, you know, his train ticket was punched first and Hindenburg just sort of jumped the train on the way. So let's start. Let's let's start talking about the the, the myth making. Then, so you have Liège, you have Tannenberg, and then you have him, as you point out, presiding as you know, effectively dictator of the German state. 
what what is his argument after the war? Is it you know is it as simple as the the, the military had this thing licked and then a series of you know conspiracies from Catholics and, and Jews and Freemasons and so forth sold us out? What 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 more to walk walk us through the myth and then we'll we'll talk through the the reality. Yeah, so I mean that was his. It, it, it takes some time to develop. In fact, his early writings are not particularly anti-Semitic, and it's not until you know he in the the there's a a parliamentary procedure investigation into the causes of the defeat, and he and Hindenburg both testify, and and Hindenburg is sort of fed these words by Ludendorff and Ludendorff's lawyer that that the army had been stabbed in the back. And it takes a while for it to come to its full-fledged form where it's it's Jews and socialists and Catholics and Freemasons that that had conspired to undermine the morale of the home front and and call for an armistice and and a surrender, which ultimately, I mean, it's it's I mean, this is the the truth of it is Ludendorff calls for an armistice. Ludendorff wants to save the army and and it decides that's the only way to do it and then has second thoughts and and tries to explain it all after the fact in this kind of underhanded way. But yeah, no, he he it's it's when he marries his second wife Matilda that this becomes this sort of full-fledged you know, kind of ironclad conspiracy with Catholics and Freemasons and so forth involved. And and for him, oddly, you know, for most most of us, if we think about German history in that time period, it's the anti-Semitism and so forth. But it was really Catholics that that disturbed Ludendorff, which is part of why he becomes marginalized. He's he's so devoutly anti-Christian that most Germans who are Christian themselves can't handle him. He's uh He's that's that's what undoes him. Whereas Hitler, for example, I think was a little more strategic about it. Whatever his real beliefs might have been, he was at least wary most of the time about alienating most Germans who were Christian. But to Ludendorff, Christianity was a hoax. It was a, a Jewish conspiracy designed to alienate Germans from their real spirituality. That was how Matilda would have put it and, and how Ludendorff believed by the end of his life. You have a great quote from a from a journalist after the after the Second World War about Matilda, which I just I just turned to the page. She says, Yes, the occupation forces are inclined to agree with Madame that she truly had been persecuted by Nazism, because I guess for a period there she had slipped through the net of denoxification efforts. Amazing. But to continue the quote, although a more careful examination would prove that poor Nazism had been persecuted by the Ludendorffs for being lukewarm. Is that, yeah. that seem basically basically yeah. accurate? No, I mean I, that this is what what hooked me into the story was I, I got asked many years ago to write some encyclopedia entries on Eric Ludendorff for for an encyclopedia of anti-Semitism on on Eric Ludendorff about whom I thought I knew a lot and then his second wife and their publishing company and I'm like who who is his second wife I'd never heard of her and 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 why did he have a publishing company it was it was in uncovering that story that I was like oh my god this is you know, it was it was just so fascinating and and strange. And they're still around. I mean, I, I won't publicize their website, but you can still buy their, especially Matilda's books, on the internet. The publishing company is still around. Could we just almost for the record, would you make the case that it is simply not the, the case that the German military would have triumphed in you know nineteen eighteen? 
had it not been for the conspiracies oh. holding them, holding them, or, or if not for, let's let's put it more neutrally, if not for, you know, non-military civilian elements holding them back. Absolutely. Every legitimate German historian will back me up that the German army was defeated in 1918. And, and, and Ludendorff knew it. Ludendorff knew it. Ludendorff is the one who asked for an armistice in, in October and in September, actually. So, and, and partly to save the army, you know, to fight against revolutionaries, the, 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 what was going on in the Soviet Union, the burgeoning civil war there, they could see the writing on the wall and they're like, we're going to need an army to prevent the communists from taking over. And so even if, even, you know, whatever is going on with the, the, the war effort, our army has other jobs and that it needs to be preserved for. So, I mean, the desertions, you know, Americans, I think, are a little bit too, you know, proud of themselves for the contribution they're they're making. But they're, you know, the, the arrival of the Americans in 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 France made a difference, and uh, the the Germans that that Michael offensive that was Ludendorff's brainchild in the spring of 1918 had failed, and Ludendorff recognized it. That they were absolutely defeated. You know, as as a Marine, I have an even more extreme and specific take on the question of of 1918. I don't know if you've had the pleasure of visiting the Marine Corps Museum in Quantico, Virginia. I I know, but I I know the Marine story quite well. Well, but what's special about the museum is if you visit it and you visit their World War exhibition, and that were your the source of your knowledge about 1918, you could be forgiven for concluding that the the German offensive was on the verge of taking Paris when luckily the Marines arrived at Belleau Wood and turn the whole thing back. And yes, there were some troops in the army. There's the French army around somewhere as well. And we're grateful to them for their assistance. But but it really was. But also the exhibition amazingly seems to, it suggests that 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines invents fire and movement <laughs> in the course of their assault on the on the wood that pinned down, they sort of spontaneously dis- discover the buddy rush and associated these sort of tactical combined arms efforts. It's It's a trip. All, all, and all true, of course, I should say for the record. To the American military contribution in World War One, it was it was essential. But we, you know, whenever so we did you know, graduate students at Temple studying American military history, and, and I'm almost like, okay, what's going on on the other side? You know, you tell me about the German side and and it, it's the enemy is collapsing at the same time that the Americans are figuring out what they should do and and doing it. And good good on them. But the Germans are are hollow by that point. And the core, just to just to emphasize it, because because it seems important that the the core of the German decision making is we are going to face something like a socialist communist revolution at home. This contagion is spreading from the east, and that needs to be our primary concern. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, four years of this destructive war, they have to have something to to show for it. But yeah, I think ultimately. Not enough attention is paid by historians to the the example of what's going on in the Soviet Union, and the kind of you know the extrapolation as the leadership is extrapolating what what's going to happen here is is pretty monumental for the Germans. So then, so we have the armistice. The the, the war ends. German politics, in fact, do go off the rails. What what happens to Ludendorff in these these early years, nineteen nineteen twenty? Yeah, so I mean, this one of the one of the readers of the manuscript, and again, they're anonymous, so I don't know who they were, but like, kind of opened my eyes after having worked on this for 
10 years almost to Ludendorff as an author. And, and what a prolific, em, embarrassingly so for someone, you know, who took 20 years to write my second book. <laughs> he wrote his memoir in three months, 600 and something pages while he was hanging out in Sweden and without, with, without much documentation, like all just from memory, he writes this book, which is amazing. And then, and then follows that on. And that's the story I traced through the twenties and thirties is, is his kind of authorial output really, because his he doesn't have one of the complications of writing the story is he doesn't have, you know, papers like a great man in history, you know, George Washington, you, you, there's no, there's no archive you can go to that, that has his stuff. It's just, you know, the family, partly because the family still espouses this philosophy of this anti, this conspiratorial philosophy doesn't recognize the legitimacy of the federal Republic. And so, you know, it's a, it's a whole crazy story. So I had to, well, I had to rely in some ways on his, on his published output. Wow. Okay. So what's he, he writes the memoir and that, and then what's he, what's he saying? What's he, what's he publishing up? So, I mean, the memoir is there, there, uh, there's all, you know, everyone writes their memoir after the first World war, you get, a, you get a whole slew of these met Ludendorff has the advantage of coming out first in some ways, and it's widely translated and widely read. Then he starts publishing a couple more pieces that are come out in the mainstream press. By the mid-1920s, he founds his own publishing company and, and starts publishing a newspaper and, or, you know, kind of a, yeah, a, a newsletter, I guess, what might be a better description of it. And then lots and lots of little you know, booklets on a variety of subjects and, and it's very, and I think this is really the, the, the contribution of the book is really, he's, he's a very clever, clever marketer of his own legend and this, and this story about the stab in the back and so forth that he tells in a variety of different ways. And he supports other authors that tell this, this story about how Germany wasn't really defeated and, and it was this conspiracy that resulted in in the the unjust loss of the First World War. And, and timing, and you know, I, I think the perfect example is his book Total War, which comes out in 1935 and kind of coins the term in German, describing this new style of warfare that comes out of first the First World War, timed to coincide with Hitler's announcement of conscription and the creation of the Luftwaffe in 1935. You know, so it's, it's it's marketing. It's it's a, a, an amazing marketing phenomenon. And he, he's involved in these two putches in the twenties, early twenties. The second of which, obviously, directly involves Hitler. What maybe you know we we think about the twenties and thirties in Germany. We think about the Nazis, but the Nazis initially are sort of one part of a broader landscape. What is the right wing landscape in Germany in the twenties? Where does Ludendorff fit into it? And then ultimately, what is his relationship to Hitler? Right. So, so Ludendorff is, he is the right wing in Germany prior to 1925. More, you know, Hitler is a nobody. Hitler, in fact, becomes prominent partly because of Ludendorff, so his association with Ludendorff. I, I couldn't find the smoking gun, but I, I know for a fact that Ludendorff was using his industrial connections to fund groups like the Nazis, bundling money from these wealthy right-wing industrialists to not just the Nazis, but including the Nazis. And then, and, and giving his credibility 
to these groups and eventually ultimately to the Nazis. I mean, Ludendorff is the household name, but he's polarizing. There are lots of people that don't like him because of the war, because of his dictatorial authority. People on the left particularly don't, don't like him, but he's, he is the right wing. I mean, the Kaiser becomes irrelevant. Tirpitz kind of tries, the Admiral, he's around, but it's really Ludendorff that embodies this, this kind of nationalist, right-wing, revanchist ideology. And then it's, it's the trial. I mean, ultimately, and, and, and there's no, even as if someone who's written a, you know, a whole book about Ludendorff, there's no escaping the fact that Hitler surpasses Ludendorff at the trial. And, and Ludendorff looks kind of sadly apologetic and it, it doesn't come off very well. And, and Hitler really uh, grabs the platform and, and, and takes over at that point. But until 1925, at least, Ludendorff is, is the guy. And then I, I argue, I think he, his presence lingers af, even after 1925 and the trial and the, the ascension of, of Hitler. He remains this this figurehead for a kind of conservative nationalist right wing idea of revenge. Is this issue I want to get at? And I'm not entirely sure exactly how to get at because it, it's complicated. But it was obviously convenient. You'll know more about this than me as the professional. But it was obviously convenient after the Second World War for Germans, particularly people associated with the German military, which is a large number of Germans in the aftermath of the Second World War to characterize the First World War as you know, fundamentally defensible. If the Germans were in the wrong, kind of everyone was also in the wrong. You know, the British Empire was in the wrong and so forth. Right. And, and the, the second- British would back them up on that. I mean, there was a, even by the mid-1920s, the, the kind of historiography of the, the origins of the war had turned to like, well, we all share some of the blame. Sure. And by the, by the time of the Soviet revolution, you know, you could blame, you could point the finger at Russia pretty, squarely so yeah sure sure well okay so that's but that's but here's how the, the complexity of what i'm driving is that's only a piece of it so you have that that notion that world war one you know a bit of a gimme for the germans even if you can't defend world war ii and then sort of connected to that there's this notion that the german military the professional officer class the old line conservatives the aristocrats etc Yes, of course, in the Second World War, they got involved in things they ought not to have been involved in and were complicit in any number of crimes. But when it comes down to it, you know, it was really Hitler and the Nazis. The, the German military itself retained a kind of integrity such that after the Second World War, they could be portrayed sympathetically in all manner of American movies, right? In a way that, you know, the Japanese army rarely was. So you have this kind of complex, you know, attitude that the, the German officer corps is somehow less complicit there's 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 really not a clear line from them to the nazis they're off the hook in some ways but ludendorff as a particular figure actually connects a lot of things that that the account i just laid out would prefer to keep separate right he is a bit of a through line from the officer corps and german conservatism and the german military through to nazism and you know radical right wing politics of the of the 20s and 30s the I guess the counter part of the counter argument to that would be, well, he's not an aristocrat, so he's kind of got some some sort of seeds and populism in him from the start anyway. But how, how, how do you respond to that? 
Wow. So first of all, I mean, there's this whole story about the clean Wehrmacht, right? That the Wehrmacht hadn't really been involved in the crimes of the Nazis, which is not true. And historians knew it wasn't true right away. It, it, it has taken longer and it still persists in some ways in a kind of public consciousness. You know, it, and, and there was the, the, the attempt to kill Hitler in, in 1944 that was spearheaded by the military for complicated reasons that it would take more than 10 minutes to explain that gives the military a kind of credibility vis-a-vis its anti-Nazi credentials. But I think that, that's what's so fascinating about Ludendorff. He's anti-Nazi, but from an even more right-wing anti-Semitic position. So he, he, his wife is, as you mentioned earlier, is, is denazified as a, as a resistance figure initially <laughs> because she and Eric had written overtly, explicitly anti-Nazi books and cartoons and, and things like that that are, that are there for everyone to see. And yet they were also, they thought Hitler and the Nazis were part of an anti, of a Jewish Catholic conspiracy to destroy Germany. So it's it's very complicated. And and I would say, you know, in some ways, this is more about my first book, which is much less interesting because uh, it was a dissertation at one point than my second book about Ludendorff. But it, it, there, there are a lot of deep-seated connections between the, what the Nazis represented and, and what the German military fundamentally represented before the war and after the war. And and it's it's there for everyone to see after after nineteen forty five. Well, what are what are some of the connections? So I mean, the German military was totally on board with the Nazis in terms of the restoration of German power and what that necessitated, which was war, and and war in the East was where it was you know that was where it's going to come. You won't find every officer on record as a virulent anti-Semite, but they were certainly okay with it. And so it's 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 very it's very deep rooted. The kind of so one of the things, and again, this is going back to my first book in some ways more than than the second one, but a, a kind of there's an authoritarianism to their to their worldview that is antithetical to democracy and pluralism and what we would associate with a kind of modern, even with modern Germany, but certainly with a, a kind of Western-oriented democratic society. They, they, it was their anti-communism that really kept them on board long enough to, for, for kind of democracy to become a little bit more of a habit. But that's, it's, it's, it's a huge question. <laughs> Fair enough. I could teach a whole class. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I would take it. It's, it's, it's interesting subject matter. It, they, in they, terms of- so they wanted, the German military believed in a kind, in a, a kind of an elite, they had an elitist vision of society, that there were sort of natural leaders and those people should be allowed to lead and control. And, and, and that's fundamentally anti-democratic. So they had to struggle with that. And I think Dorf is just the, you know, a times X manifestation of that. And then it, just in terms of war aims between the First World War and the Second World War, I mean, by the time Ludendorff is really running the show, 1916 to 18, I mean, the war aims are not identical to Hitler's aims. You know, there is no 
you know, there, there, there is no final solution for, for one, one obvious difference, right? There is no effort to murder all the Jews of Europe. Fair. I don't think Ludendorff could have imagined the Holocaust. Interesting. He is he, you know, for all of his smarts, wherever they might've been, he couldn't imagine that. What, what do you mean by that? Can you say more? I, I see that as an evolution of, of people like Himmler and Heydrich and, and Eichmann and, and Hitler, obviously. And I think Ludendorff's imagination was in the past. It, it didn't envision that kind of modern horror. Hmm. Uh, he was, he was so into, he was, he thought he was more anti-Semitic than Hitler. Right. I mean, he was, he thought Hitler was part of the Jewish conspiracy and yet the death camps at, at, uh, you know, no were not in his imagination. That's interesting. Because the, the question I was going to ask, or just just get your view on, is, you know, while the the, the war aims of the German Empire, circa you know nineteen sixteen or so, are not those of the Nazis. That said, it's not it's not it's also not possible to just let them off the mm-hmm. off the hook, right? I mean, they the, the they were contemplating again. You're going to know a lot more than me. They were contemplating a you know a continental empire, in particular to the east that involved Slavic subjugation, right? You know, this this was not, as it were, these were not normal geopolitical aims in sort of the the tradition of some of their some of their neighbors. Maybe the Russians accepted. Fair? Or or am I am I off base? No, yeah, fair enough. Read read Veus Lilevich's Warland on the Eastern Front. It's it's about Ludendorff in and the with the territory that the Germans called Oberost. The you know basically the Baltic the Baltic nations and their plans for that area as a kind of precursor for what the Nazis were were thinking about again I I, I think without the genocide I mean I, it, it ultimately right. you could right. you could extrapolate out and say yeah it's the people that are there that are the problem from the Germans' view and they might have eventually come to that but they're they're trying to administer this this vast Eastern territory of great agricultural value, and you know, much the same way that the Nazis thought about it. It's that's that's a great book, Cambridge Press, probably late nineties. It's been old now, but no, I appreciate it. No, it's it, what you say about the family as well, and you know, the the presence of these publications. It is striking to to muse on what sort of you know dragons lie sleeping in in European politics, even even today. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Ludendorff toyed with the idea of a kind of Central European counter-revolutionary white republic cooperating with, you know, Italy and Hungary and, and places like that. And, and it's, you know, it's, those ideas are still around. Jay Lochnauer, author of Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Eric Ludendorff in the Weimar Republic and Third Reich. I really appreciate you taking the time today. It was a really interesting conversation. I, I learned a lot. This is a nebulous media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.